0: This podcast is sponsored by Kaplan Professional, the leading provider of online education for Australia's finance industry. Studying my Master of Applied Finance with Kaplan Professional provided me with the flexibility and support to deepen my specialist knowledge while balancing my professional commitments. If you're planning to sit the CFA exam, Kaplan Professional is also renowned for the most respected preparation materials in the industry. Visit kaplanprofessional.edu.au to learn more. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Emmanuel Datt is the Managing Director of the Datt Family Office and Datt Capital a relatively new investment management company based in Melbourne. In this episode, we discuss Emmanuel's early life and growing up with two entrepreneurial parents. His mother was a general practitioner, while his father owned and operated a motel and invested heavily in commercial property. Emmanuel talks at length about his earliest successes and failures in markets, the psychology of investing, a major ASX-listed technology investment, lending large sums of money to property developers, and running a multi-asset portfolio. Please enjoy this episode with Emmanuel Datt of Datt Capital. Emmanuel, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Perhaps you can cast uh, your mind back to when you were a youngster and your parents were uh, running two businesses. It's my understanding your father was in tourism uh, with a hotel, uh, with a motel, and your mother was a general practitioner.
1: Yes, correct. I guess, um, you know, I grew up in a fairly middle class sort of family, Mm -hmm. and uh, as you mentioned, my mother was a GP with her own practice, and my father obviously was in motel operator and also did commercial property type plays here and there. And I think um, one particular aspect that is uh, very, I guess, relevant to this conversation is just seeing from a very young age the type of work mm. uh hours and work ethic that they put in uh for example i always remember you know uh, my mother works saturdays saturday mornings and uh you know my dad did as well mm. and so saturday was almost like another work day for mm-hmm. us and uh you know we'd obviously help out here and there where we could you know sunday was obviously the day of rest so we always mm. look forward to sundays but i always remember that um being really interested in the conversations that my father used to have with uh, you know his friends and you know at social events when they talk about various investments and business uh, propositions that always held I always really enjoyed listening to uh, I guess the adults speak about mm-hmm. those sort of opportunities and um, you know how they are doing <laughs> the investments and all that sort of thing so I guess that is that I guess in retrospect it, uh, is where my interest may have uh, been sparked in, mm. in the financial and investment space.
0: Were they were they self made work? Your parents they started. Yes,
1: businesses? yes. So uh, my father immigrated to Australia when he was twenty years old, mm-hmm. uh, and my mother followed uh, a couple of years behind him once they got married. Yeah, so they were very much uh, self made. Um, my um, you know. Um, my mother uh, worked in uh, you know, hospitals and all sorts of medical facilities before. So she had um, a doctor before she came out? Yes, she'd done medical school, okay. but she'd worked sort of extensively. They lived in regional areas for some time as well mm-hmm. uh, in Benalla. So she was working in hospitals and doing locums and that sort of type of work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, my father obviously was involved in tourism uh, in the regional areas as well. Um, pretty much the same capacity and when they moved back to Melbourne then uh, they decided to set up in uh, Hoppers Crossing which is in the western suburbs of Melbourne
2: Mm.
1: and it was uh, you know not really considered part of metropolitan (laughs) Melbourne at the time that they moved there but you know they saw the opportunity to set up a sort of GP practice and for my father to commute to the big you know city Mm. uh, for work and uh,
0: so the GP clinic came
1: first? It was Around the same time, um, mm. I think it may have been slightly after, by maybe four or five months, something like that. Okay. Basically. Two businesses
0: pretty much from scratch. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, from the hospital, uh, the tourism side, uh, my father had some partners that were involved in the business at the time, and sort of gradually, they were bought out.
0: You know. Okay. Uh, it sounds like they were very entrepreneurial, you know, they're willing to take the risk. Yeah. Did that ever... Do you think that wore off on you? Did you ever have any entrepreneurial tendencies as a youngster?
1: Ah, uh, not particularly. But um, I always remembered hearing, you know, my father uh, and mother telling me stories of when they first got married and um, they were living in Melbourne, um, out in Oakley. How you know they'd buy up houses in Richmond and the Cremorne area, mm-hmm. which was considered very blue-collar at that time. Mm. So. Not today. Not today, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember my father sort of, you know, when we'd drive through area he'd be like, oh, you know, me and your mum renovated that house. We, you know, bought it for 10 grand and mm-hmm. we sold it for 14 or something like that, gave it a splash of paint. And, you know, so I think um, that was obviously before they had kids, So uh, you know, it was a happy period of their life when <laughs> they were renovating or doing little renovations on properties and flipping them over for a bit of cash. So I think that... Uh, was uh quite you know made an impression on me that Mm. you know there are many ways to sort of earn a dollar it's just about uh applying yourself and using your head it's
0: interesting i i would assume that your mother being a gp and your father having his own business that that would consume much of their time and their their effort uh, and it would hopefully also be quite lucrative but then to have all these businesses or projects on the side i should say Mm. um Yeah, I suppose that adds a totally new dynamic to your understanding of money.
1: Yes, yes, I think so. And I think also um, we were raised in a very frugal environment. So, you know, we never got pocket money, for example. We had to justify or convince them why we should (laughs) uh, get them to purchase something for us. And, uh, yeah, we were sort of expected to help out, do our chores, all that sort of thing. Would
0: you receive... So when you say justify, can you draw in any examples of, you know, would you say, oh, I want to get into the cinemas or something like that? Or
1: Yeah, pretty much so. Um, when I was younger, cinemas were a fairly uh, special event, so they were quite rare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think it's more the fact that, you know, we were sort of, uh, you know, sometimes you see kids today, they get pocket money, you know, because they're doing chores, for example. Mm. But that was never sort of the case. Uh, in my household, it was more an expectation that you know you're part of the family, you have to help out, mm. and um, yeah, I think that sort of attitude flowed through.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay, one thing you did mention to me in a previous conversation is that your parents, one thing that they, I suppose, were more than willing to spend on was your education. Reflecting on that now, do you think that was a worthwhile investment? And maybe you could just describe where you went to school.
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, I attended private school uh, my entire life. So mm-hmm. I attended primary school uh, at a school called West Vaughan Grammar, which is in Hoppers uh, Crossing. I attended high school at Melbourne Grammar, which is uh, just in South Yarra. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt it was uh, a good experience because uh, of the emphasis on learning and I suppose provided a good environment to try and fulfill, mm. you know, whatever the potential um, was in, you know, a child or kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that it was quite beneficial because uh, it was a well-rounded education. It wasn't just purely academic. So we're always, uh, sports was mandatory, for example, but mm-hmm. so were sort of art classes and, you know, you, it gave you... A broad range of experiences, which I found really beneficial, even in terms of learning languages. You know, I've been learning various languages since prep. Mm. Uh, I'm not really sure if that was typical for the time versus Mm. a public school. I know public schools today obviously have that same emphasis, but I felt it was uh, a very beneficial educational experience.
0: Mm. So they didn't have any, uh, I suppose, plans for you to become a doctor following your mother's yes.
1: footsteps? Yes, well, uh, the first 18 years of my life, um, I had uh, the impression that uh, I would, that th- that was what I, the path I wanted to pursue in life. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother's side of the family were mostly uh, in the medical profession uh, as doctors and various you know, specialities mm-hmm. uh, they practiced. So I felt it was my calling um, at the time mm. as well. And um, I suppose as I got older, I realised the, the length of uh, the educational process in following a medical career mm. uh, in Australia itself. And I realised that it was maybe not the path that I wanted to follow. I always had the example of my mother as uh, a GP and being a very sort of selfless caring person mm. towards um, you know her patients i think at the time i felt that i couldn't quite live up to that as well you know i felt it wasn't necessarily uh, suited to my personality i think at the time
0: mm. that's uh, that, that sounds reasonable to me so then you went and became or you went to st- university to yes stay?
1: yes so then uh, i attended Deakin university uh i pursued an arts and commerce degree i ended uh um, and at the time, uh, during uni, I was also working mm. uh, in the family businesses. What were you doing? I was managing, uh, in the early days, I was managing my mother's medical practice to a large degree. And also in the hotel side, I was basically um, doing menial sort of <laughs> work uh, initially. And then sort of over time, I graduated towards uh, to the back office and started keeping the books and, you know, being more involved on the business side
0: that's great so you had your your apprenticeship um dealing with customers and this, yeah, the community
1: exactly yeah and i felt that was quite valuable in terms of you know i feel that i can read people very well now mm. and um both being service industries to a degree i felt that it was um it gave me a lot of humility and seeing uh, people from all levels of um you know uh, from all levels um, socially Mm -hmm. and being able to interact with everyone and sort of improve my personal skills because I was quite a shy kid growing Mm. up yeah so I felt that it was um yeah very good experience and you know I still use a lot of the skills I picked up Mm. uh yeah in my day-to-day life today
0: well most of us don't have that that tangible experience with business do we I remember when I was in school um one of the students in my class said uh, his father was in business. Mm. That was just a vague term for me. I didn't know what that meant. And Mm. um, it was was totally different for me. So uh, I think that early experience for you, once again, just helps shape you uh, as an investor now. And Mm. um, what I suppose what's required Mm. to make things a success. Um, So you've studied at, at Deakin and you' you are fulfilling these managerial roles in your early twenties mm-hmm. uh, how many people were you were you dealing with or how many people were I under think at vision?
1: that stage um I think the entire group had somewhere i'd say about the mid thirties um mm. you know across the board mm-hmm. um so you know I was dealing with sort of um payroll um mm. uh, you know, all sorts of <laughs> various managerial responsibilities. As, a, as um, an early... As an early 20s, yeah. yeah sort of. It was quite a uh, good experience. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot because you're dealing with people from the customer side. You're also dealing with uh, your employees and staff and mm. making sure everyone is happy, working out grievances and, you know, if there are any... And, uh, yeah, so it was a very um, rich experience.
0: Mm, the nitty-gritty um, behind yeah, the scenes. Really so. the face, yeah, really at the coalface, I guess, at work. Yeah. 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 Great. So around about was it 2006, prior to the GFC, um, it's my understanding this is when you started to invest your own money, per- personally, yes. while you're still working. Can you yes. describe some of the early, early learnings, some of your successes and failures, perhaps? Yeah, sure. So I think...
1: The very first stock I purchased was ABC Learning Centres, okay. and uh, that was via I think I'd opened up an IG Markets or a CMZ Markets one of those sort of CFD type accounts with you know mm. a very small amount of money, maybe a thousand dollars, and I think what I think I'd read an article in the paper saying that our oh, ABC is um, going going to you know the stock price will be significantly higher in six months or mm. something like that, and. You know, as a uni student at the time, I thought, oh, you know, this sounds like easy money. I might give it a go. Mm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so um, I did that and it was an abject failure. Yeah. <laughs> I probably don't need to. <laughs> yeah. I think most
0: of us know how ABC learning ended.
1: Yeah. 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 So I think uh, that experience of loss and, um, you know, $1,000 uh, to me as a uni student was quite significant. Mm. And uh, you know, feeling the personal pain um, of you know uh, making a bad investment, I think that sort of fired me to you know work out what I'd done wrong and how I'd done it wrong. Because you know, academically I was always um, very strong, mm. and I guess I always thought that um, there was a way to do things uh, in a better way. Uh, I always felt that I can justify something. Uh, intellectually or, Mm. you know, anything can be solved if you approach it the right way or with the right amount of application. And that's sort of the approach uh, I took. I really wanted to find out why I made a loss, essentially. So I did, uh, I guess, a little bit of study into how the markets work, sort of learnt uh, from the ground up. And so uh, when that happened, it was sort of, um, you know, the very beginning of the uranium boom. Mm -hmm. after learning sort of the the ground, uh, you know, the very basic sort of framework for the markets, um, you know, I was on uh, a lot of uh, stock market discussion forums at Mm -hmm. the time, uh, just learning the ropes, I guess you could call it. (laughs) Um, And I noticed a large uranium mine, Cigar Lake in Canada had flooded and that would wipe out a large proportion of um, uranium production at the time. And uh, so basically, uh, with that knowledge in mind, I thought, okay, the commodity price rise, you know, uranium obviously being a controlled uh, material, Mm. you know, there's no ability to really ramp up supply that quickly. So I think I had that uh, knowledge of supply and demand quite young, I Mm. suppose, or, you know, I'd picked it up maybe a bit earlier, but it sort of intuitively made sense. Um, Also, you know, stuff you learn in, economics at uni or or in high school yeah (laughs) Yeah. so it sort of made sense to me intuitively so um you know looked through the various uranium companies made a few investments and i was quite successful for sort of uh, a year or two so i managed to run up uh my sort of savings of i think it was about thirty thousand at the time Mm -hmm. uh ran it up 700 percent to a bit over 200 grand uh, on paper Mm -hmm. yeah and um as I mentioned uh, in, in the previous interview that uh, I went away on holidays uh, for a month, had a lovely holiday and came back and it was cut in half oh. <laughs> because of, um, you know, the market correction. So wow. it was a very valuable learning experience, you know, with the acceleration of, you know, making that much money uh, at the time, mm. which was very significant.
0: How old were you at this time?
1: Uh, I was 23 or 24. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. I think the average... Salary at the time was somewhere around 40 grand, so mm. it was, um, you know, it was a big um uh, amount at the yeah, time really for me, anyway. it? Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so just riding the exhilaration <laughs> up, but then feeling you know the despondency when it came down, even though I was still well ahead of where where I'd started. That um, you know, mm. take off tax and all that sort of thing, and uh, you know, it's it's a it was a really probably major one of the key learning experiences for me.
0: The uranium price at the time was Mm. just seemed no end to it. Um, Mm. I think it hit about $140 a pound and Mm. now it's back below $20 or so, I think. Yes. Um, It seems that every year since that time uh, someone's been calling for a uranium boom Mm. of some description.
2: Yeah.
0: Did you, I suppose, take away anything psychologically with your behaviour and your temperament from that, that big drawdown?
1: Uh, Yes, I sort of, that taught me about position sizing more Mm -hmm. than anything, because I was heavily concentrated in uh, these particular uranium stocks. Mm -hmm. So I was fully invested probably across maybe three or four Mm -hmm. stocks, and they're all related to the uranium sector. So um, the correlation (laughs) between all of them was uh, probably very, very high. Mm -hmm. And so that taught me um, quite a lot. About diversification and uh, I guess holding uncorrelated positions.
0: I'm, I'm interested to know how you got to that initial $30,000 to invest while you're at uni. Yeah, well, uh,
1: this is a particularly strong memory for me. Uh, I re- remember having saved uh, about $2,000 by the time I left high school. Mm-hmm. And throughout probably the first two years of university, I was working part-time, earning, you know, a small amount. Uh, I think at that time I was earning maybe a couple of hundred bucks a week working part-time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I realized that, um, I, I think it must have been the second or third, at the end of the second or third year of university, I looked at my bank account and I thought, you know, I had this amount of money, you know, at the time I mm-hmm. left high school. And... It was really a big uh, shock to me in a way. I'd been enjoying mm-hmm. uh, university life a little too much, spending on things that I didn't need or you know, particularly um, care for, I guess, after some time mm-hmm. or I wasn't being careful enough with my money. But that experience really uh, made me uh, think about what I was spending mm-hmm. on and uh, so over time, um, I'd managed to sort of save up uh, my earnings and uh, build it up to about 30 grand. And that's sort of where I got my initial stake mm. to invest um, in, just that's by being a little bit disciplined about, you know, not maybe buying that extra drink <laughs> <or> <laughs> at the university bar or, you know, um, just cutting out, uh, you know, the expenses
0: that were luxuries in retrospect. Mm. It's funny how we can make those tweaks to our spending and... Before we know it, that snowballed into something which can lead to, in this uh, case, life-changing in effect because you were able to use that money later on to invest. It's,
1: yes, it's yes, and, um, yeah. Maybe it was um, part of uh, my frugal upbringing that it had to mm. come out somewhere. That mm-hmm. you know, I felt I maybe you know needed to spend money to to feel um, happy, but mm-hmm. I realised that it didn't really provide happiness. <laughs> And that, um, yeah, a bit of uh, common sense went a
0: long way mm. in the end. It's interesting. We always, um, when we're young, we seek abundance and we, you know, we, we collect things, we collect people and friendships and wh- what we think of friendships. But mm. over time, we begin to realize that uh, perhaps uh, it's the opposite. We, you know, we prune our our financial uh, our, our circles of of people and we begin to appreciate what we have in front of us and think that's uh in a way it's it, it's born out here in terms of you know we, we we spend on these things that we think will make us happy mm. um only to find that they're not but uh i, I imagine this was around the time of the, the global financial crisis the gfc okay. um in the lead up to it at least mm-hmm. were you still investing throughout the gfc
1: i was um but to a much smaller degree mm-hmm. um i think i'd been yeah, psychologically, it took me some time to digest and process. Mm. I guess the loss I'd experienced, and uh, I took from memory. I uh, I monitored the markets, but uh, to a degree, I was uh, afraid. Mm. I guess because um, you yeah, know during the GFC period, uh, the market was in a general downtrend for about eighteen months. From memory, mm. you know every day there was doom and gloom know from everyone you mm. know the media and you know people that you spoke to, so I think there was a lot of uncertainty uh in, during that particular period of time and uh i it affected me uh because I felt you know to a degree writing the um i guess writing you know with my portfolio value, I felt that I was untouchable and mm. I could you know I knew everything yeah, <laughs> and uh you know to have uh, that portfolio value come crashing down, it was really uh, you know, a wake-up call mm. for me.
0: So you, uh, you were, I suppose, put off by this the, the emotions, the, 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 mm. the behavioral um, biases kicked in here. Do you now look back on that and do you think what an opportunity that was or are you, are you still today, do you still believe that that was p- perhaps the right decision for you at the time?
1: Yes, I think it was the right decision at the time. I think the right analogy is that the person you are today uh, is the sum of all your prior experiences. Mm-hmm. So you can't—I would not have—wouldn't have, change anything mm-hmm. uh, I've done in retrospect. I think uh, you know time was needed to gain that humility in mm-hmm. terms of um, you know learning that uh, the market is mm-hmm. the master. <laughs> it's <laughs> not something that you can influence on an individual level. I felt that it's—it's uh, it's really uh, helped shape my investment philosophy
0: mm. that's a great way to put it and as always I personally think that it's, it's better to learn these lessons earlier in life mm. because we have time to recover and, 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 and adapt and Definitely. yeah, compound that knowledge over time mm. so this leads us to a, a, a difficult time in your life personally and mm-hmm. from what I can tell perhaps even financially yeah. um, which was the passing of your father before you turned 30 mm-hmm. um, and I can imagine um, if, you know, if that wasn't hard enough, you've had um, this, the family businesses in the background, and, mm-hmm. crook and farming. You're the eldest child in the family. Ah, uh, no, I'm no. the middle child. Middle child, yeah. okay. But uh, you have the, the uh, I suppose the financial nous and understanding. Yes. Um, this was a particularly tough time for your family. Did you feel the weight of responsibility given your I suppose like i said the the understanding of finance to take that role on
1: uh yes so i guess part of it is uh uh, my cultural background Mm. uh coming from uh being um coming from an indian background you know the culture is generally uh, paternalistic in the sense Mm. that uh, you know the weight of um, i guess the family expectation typically falls upon uh, the eldest son I'm the only son in in my family so um, I guess you know from a very young age I was brought up with uh, a sense of responsibility and the sense that you know Mm. when my father's gone uh, I have to sort of take care of my family
2: Mm.
1: and that's something that um, I was happy to I guess bear because I'd I'd been raised uh, like that from a very young age. Mm. Also what comes into it is obviously my uh, education and
0: my financial nows as so it, well so it was never a case of why me and throwing arms up in the air and
1: uh, no no so yeah i mean <clears throat> it was just i guess at 29 you know yeah you you should be a man <laughs> i yeah. guess that's what it comes down to and you, you should be able to take care
0: of um, you know your loved ones i i, I mean Personally, I can only imagine, but to put some context behind this, um, obviously the, the businesses, while you're investing and you're still operating mm-hmm. parts of the businesses, they're still bubbling away and they're still, you've, you've still got um, things to do and things to manage.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yep.
0: Perhaps you can talk about uh, some of the the property investments or the, the work you're doing on property, your family was doing on property sure. around this time and, and yep. your role in that.
1: No problem. My family were uh, typically heavily invested in property. Mm generally pretty highly leveraged so um, I think a lot of um, the family funds were probably uh, used in debt servicing and that sort of thing Mm. but you know over time my father built up quite a good sizable landholding in in Melbourne uh, in an area called
0: Brunswick Mm. And uh, Quite you know, a trendy suburb nowadays.
2: Yeah,
1: at mm. that time it was very much sort of unloved, but uh, I guess uh, he could see the potential mm. uh, evident in the location. And so um, basically it acquired um, quite a, sort of a sizable portion of property over time. Mm-hmm. And so at the time of his death, there were, I guess, a few considerations because you know the tourism industry was still uh, in do- in the doldrums um, from the GFC mm. years. From my perspective, uh, with it had been basically uh, unprofitable for you know the GFC years up mm. until you know maybe twenty eleven twenty twelve. So, so things quite were quite a few years. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of years to I guess uh, subsidise or just you know uh, make a loss just to <laughs> just mm. to stay yeah. uh, you know in the Absolutely. business. So. Uh so yeah, I guess you know, we will you know, I guess you could just call us asset rich but cash poor. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. guess um, at the time, oh, in the time immediately post my father's death, um, sort of my number one priority was uh, securing uh, my family's uh, financial security. Mm. So we'd looked through um, quite a number of options uh, with the best way to realize that value. We ended up having um, joint venture discussions with uh, a number of large listed companies and uh, superannuation funds. Uh, you know, as I said previously, the land uh, holding was quite substantial, mm. so it was sort of at that sort of scale. And um, yeah, I learned a huge amount about negotiation, dealing with solicitors, accountants, advisors, mm-hmm. various sorts, yeah. and really how to set up a deal, drive it through. Uh, I guess it didn't ultimately come to fruition. But, yeah, we ended up um, putting it on market and selling it. But even that, uh, you know, it was a difficult process to manage. You have to coach, cajole, threaten, push <laughs> <laughs> everyone all in the... Um, all in the you know, to work in the same direction, mm. uh, from the real estate agents to the solicitors to yeah, everyone else. It's a, it was a big um, job to do, mm. but uh, yeah, so it all worked out well. And uh, were
0: yeah. the were the I suppose the suitors for the property were they de- were they seeking to develop it? Um, Brunswick's fairly inner city, we probably call that t- today. Yeah, um, so they're probably going to put mm-hmm. a hotel or apartments or something on there yes yeah.
1: yes so we had sort of been working quite hard on the planning aspects of the site as well which is um you know uh, i guess one other aspect of the work housing <laughs> at the background so mm. but i think it was a very uh educational period for me because it really gave me the chops to evaluate commercial property you know very quickly and very easily mm. uh, my attitude has always been to really know about uh, and uh, really know about uh, opportunities and the laws around uh, i guess the planning framework mm. the legal framework all all the uh, i guess constraints around particular op- opportunities mm-hmm. intimately and you don't necessarily need to advertise that to everyone and mm. i found that has worked really well because you can really get a You can really evaluate people if you go in pretending not to know anything Mm -hmm. about a particular opportunity Mm -hmm. and uh, seeing what they actually say about it when in reality you may know just as much or even more than they do and seeing how they try and pitch it to you. So I felt that has really worked at our advantage, yeah, especially (laughs) of late.
0: I find that an interesting idea. Um, Often when people introduce themselves to me and they talk about you know, be their financial advisor or something of like that description, I, d- I generally keep it to myself that I'm also in the mm. financial industry and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how they describe what they do to a beginner mm-hmm. and uh, it allows you, I suppose, some insight into into them uh, mm. as a person and I suppose their ability to, c- to convey complex mm. messages. And I find that very interesting that you also mm. use that as a litmus test, I suppose, when you're seeking out these, these professionals and their opinion. Yeah.
1: But it really, I guess, one thing I should add is it's really shaped uh, the way we operate mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we are very transparent with uh, allies, I guess you could call <laughs> it, and uh, people that, you know, uh, are the sort of um, individuals or other family offices that we work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're very open, transparent, collaborative. You know, we don't try and, I guess, be deceptive in any sort of sense mm-hmm. and... Uh, because ultimately, we try and treat people the way we want to be treated.
0: I think that's really important. It's um, it's uh, there's plenty of instances where we can, I'm sure we can all recall, um, there's been some element of deception uh, mm-hmm. in our industry. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested because you've mentioned something to me previously about you you when you were selling the, this property, um, you were lobbying government. Mhm. Yeah. I'm interested to know how you did that and and. Because that's obviously so foreign to me and and Mm. I suppose to a lot of our listeners, how you would go about that and what you were trying to achieve there.
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, we were trying to achieve planning certainty for the site. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was uh, a really large-scale type development, or it had the potential to be very Mm -hmm. large-scale. At the time of our initial concept, it was, uh, I think the scheme we'd put together was somewhere between four or five hundred apartments at the time of um, at that particular time Mm -hmm. and so that involved um, you know we'd hired um, you know the best planning consultant that we felt was at the time and that we could afford Mm -hmm. so it involved going around to various uh, you know uh, to the local government authority uh, the council Mm -hmm. and also uh, various departments at state government level Uh, I remember having being uh, involved in a lunch uh, with the planning minister at the time
2: mm.
1: and, uh, you know, pitching him <laughs> that, <laughs> okay. you know, can you help us out? <laughs> and, uh, so it's uh, about
0: getting in front of these people. And
1: correct, and yeah, and them. just really sort of hustling to get some um, planning certainty around it. So, yeah, I remember, mm. you know, just doing whatever it took to, uh, you know, get my foot in the door at the time. And I think that's, you know, what our approach Um you can really go places and get into places which you never dreamed yeah. <laughs> existed. If you, you know, hustle and be creative in, in the ways that you, um, yeah, you know,
0: approach things. And if you're motivated to do it, Correct. you can do yeah. it. Yeah, this was around about uh, leading up to uh, uh, 2016, um, and the property successfully sells mm-hmm. um, at evaluation more than what you had previously been
2: mm-hmm.
0: offered or to be valued mm-hmm. at. Can you give us any r- very rough idea of... I mean, if it's a few hundred mm-hmm. departments, can you give us any rough idea of what we're talking about
1: here? Yeah, sure. So um, our assets under management within our own family office uh sort of in the region of uh, the mid 8 figures, and uh, that's uh, not including our external fund, which mm-hmm. we have just uh, started to take mm-hmm. on external investors.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, this... For me personally, if I was to be in your situation mm-hmm. um, and I was to come into a what you could call a liquidity event like this, mm-hmm. I'm, I might feel compelled at least to entertain the idea of potentially outsourcing some of the investing to fund managers yeah. or whoever they may be. Mm-hmm. You from what I can tell, appear to have gone the other way and, and taken the responsibility on yourself to, mm-hmm. to start a family office, which you now run. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why, I suppose, you started the DAT family office?
1: Yeah, sure. So I suppose a lot of it comes down to one thing I neglected to mention before was that I pursued a master's mm-hmm. in applied finance. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of um, you know, in the post-GFC uh, period. Mm-hmm. And I felt that was very beneficial. Mm-hmm. I did that more because I felt I had um, you know, a long-term interest in the space mm-hmm. and that I wanted to be very strong technically and uh, have a very strong you know, technical grounding mm-hmm. uh, in finance itself, but you know, with the uh, applied bent to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, not just learning theory, but uh, things that I could use practically. And uh, I felt that was uh, really, really beneficial uh, to me personally. I, I guess at the time of the not the period post the liquidity event uh, we'd sort of looked at various uh, investment options or managers
2: mm-hmm. and we
1: felt that uh, there was uh, what was lacking in the market was uh, you know a principal led uh, fund I suppose mm-hmm. that was sort of multi asset existing multi asset mm-hmm. funds you know provided very poor returns sort of you know in the low to single to mid, uh, single digits. Can I, uh, can I ask you what you mean by principal led? In terms of having uh, a CIO um, or a portfolio manager mm. uh, who had a significant portion of their wealth uh, in the fund. So that alignment it was what's making. Yeah, lacking. exactly. Yeah. So that basically obtained uh, the majority of their returns by their own investment in the fund. Mm. Yeah. But obviously, in a multi asset, and multi-strategy type context Mm. yeah
0: okay um just to give some context to readers, a family office typically has um a large pool of money Um, there's maybe accountants or people that play a role in the background Mm -hmm. and then you have investment investment specialists um taking care of that money so uh, is there some degree i suppose of control that that gives you around tax planning those types of things as well
1: yes yes so we have uh, our own staff um we typically outsource uh you know the major you know legal mm-hmm. uh, accounting that sort of thing and uh but we have you know our own investment team and you know administrative reporting team uh, internally mm-hmm. i suppose uh with the principal led uh, having a member of the family you know uh, i guess driving mm-hmm. uh, the investments um there's no uh question of agency uh, issues uh, which are obviously a big factor you know I think incentives um, are very powerful Mm. and uh, you know they have to be aligned basically but I felt that removed that entire I guess dilemma you could call it Mm -hmm. so yeah
0: yeah because it's not always the case that the person who's overseeing the family office is also part of the family correct yeah. helps, oftentimes you'll have chief investment officers that have um, spent time in the funds management mm. business and then come across correct one of the things that you've um, said to me previously and what I've read in, in some of the the commentary that you provided is you target now you target a 10 to 12 percent annualized return mm-hmm. was that uh, was that from the beginning from the get-go with the family offices was that your target, and I suppose why why was that why was that your target?
1: That was our target primarily because we felt it was achievable without a high degree of risk. and um, I, I suppose you know that would be a blended rate across multiple assets. Mm-hmm. and um, you know our uh, we've achieved it was a little bit under twelve and a half percent over the sort of previous two years. Mm-hmm. And that has been you know with the 25 percent average cash weighting, so um, we try and be mm-hmm. very sort of selective with our uh, with the investments that we sort of participate in mm-hmm. and uh, that we invest in, the opportunities. So um, yeah, I think uh, you know I think it's probably unrealistic to target, for example, 20 percent in a multi asset context mm. unless the markets are you know really. Uh, you know, really good yeah. <laughs> at the a <laughs> at particular and point, and or yeah. coming yeah. off a very sort of low, low point. Um, mm. Like, for example, the post GFC period, you could probably obtain those sort of returns. But um, I felt it was a it was an achievable return throughout the
0: cycles. Yeah, mm. uh, and that's that's might I say that's um, quite impressive to a- achieve that type of return with across multi assets, and by that we mean yeah. derivatives, fixed interest. Mm-hmm. Equities or shares and um, debt mm-hmm. in your in your case, um, in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, you decided to launch a, a managed fund vehicle alongside the family office. Yes, and, and essentially allowing outside investors mm-hmm. to, to come on board. Yes, why was that? Why was that the case? I felt
1: that there was a, that was a niche that was missing in the current uh, market offering, mm-hmm. and I felt that if we could design a product that we'd invest in ourselves, then there'd be other uh, investors or market participants that would find the product useful. Mm. So that, I guess, is the core of it. Um, I suppose uh, also the fact that I'm relatively young, uh, sort of, I mean, I'm 35 at the Mm -hmm. moment, and uh, I've got a long road ahead of me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, in this space. So I felt that uh, rather than just being happy and comfortable uh, you know, investing uh, my own family's assets, I felt that uh, it was a new challenge and uh, one where I could provide value to um, other investors.
0: In my experience, at least, it's when uh, an investor approaches it in that regard with, in, in such a way that um, they have, it's really there their own wealth that they're managing, but they allow outside investors, that um, mm. can it, it can tend to lend itself to you know, a better experience for investors. Mm. Can you explain to listeners how you manage the money from a very high level, um, that yep. bird's eye view? And I, I'm particularly interested, which we'll drill down to in just a moment, but the, the commercial part of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So can you provide sure. that, that bird's eye view for us? Sure.
1: So typically we source uh, our debt through uh, a wide variety of syndicators that we have relationships with. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, um, a syndicate is a collection of investors basically investing uh, in the same uh, facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, a commercial property owner might uh, need a $10 million dollar first mortgage facility and for whatever reason, he doesn't, he may not want to deal with the bank or they might have um, you know, exposure limits mm-hmm. uh, within, you know, their primary their primary banking partner and they just want, uh, you know, a mortgage <laughs> done so or a refinance be, done quickly. So
0: this would be like a, a property developer that wants to put up
1: Yeah, a, or it could a, be that, um, you know, a, a yield type investor that owns an office building, for example. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so a syndicate is basically, you know, just say that 10 million might be split up again uh, between five or 10 different investors that Mm -hmm. each take a piece. So we found that approach to be quite uh, beneficial Mm -hmm. in terms of diversifying our risk without, um, so it sort of spreads your risk across multiple assets and Mm -hmm. locations,
0: projects, all that sort of thing. So I felt that model uh, works quite well in the space. It probably sits within your wheelhouse, within your circle of competence, right? You know, Correct. You said to me previously, yep. you got your master's in, in commercial property. Applied um, finance. Uh, but yep. you've got the, the practical experience, <laughs> yeah, that master's exactly. degree, if you yeah, like. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. So it, it's probably right in your wheelhouse. Um, so y- you combine that exposure with uh, equities or shares, uh, fixed mm-hmm. interest, yep. and uh, even some derivatives. Mm. Uh, can you explain, I suppose, why you invest in a with a multi-asset strategy, why why you, why did you design a portfolio sure. like that?
1: Yeah, so basically, um, I guess an analogy, Owen, is uh, we consider that um, real estate debt to be uh, like an illiquid form of fixed interest, essentially, mm-hmm. which is what it is. Uh, so, that, you know, for um, a investor, they can take upon. Uh, particular risks might be credit risk, equity, illiquidity and leverage Mm -hmm. so we deal obviously in the first three risks and you just need to make sure you're getting paid for that risk ultimately Mm -hmm. (laughs) the risk that you take on. Mm. Uh, From the uh, multi-asset side of things you know diversifying across uh, the asset classes was quite important to us because um, we wanted to be defensive in our outlook And, uh, you know, we invest according to first principles Mm -hmm. across the whole capital structure. So I think by, for us, not investing in a multi, you know, taking a multi-asset approach, it's just like um, removing all the tools from your toolbox. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, so it just was something that worked uh, intuitively.
0: Um, uh, You know, it made sense to me intuitively. Yeah, with your experience and. Yeah. Given it's your family's money, that's how you would invest it. Yeah, Correct, nice. yeah. Uh, you, you, you touched on something there, um, leverage or gearing. Mm-hmm. So you don't use any type of leverage to into your position? No, no, no sort of gearing or leverage at all. And that's
1: simply f- risk? Yeah, well, I guess um, by not using leverage, it makes uh, your carrying capacity much more robust. You're not subject to margin calls or... You know the whims of uh, external parties, I suppose, Mm. and you can really hold positions with conviction Mm -hmm. um, if you have a strong conviction. That is, yeah.
0: Mm. Okay. I suppose um, what we're looking for as investors is that asymmetric return profile. We want to limit our downside and and Mm -hmm. have as much upside as possible. And there's some arguments to be made that perhaps uh, pure gearing or leverage mm-hmm. doesn't provide that. It just magnifies whatever you already have. Mm. Um, but you do use, I suppose, a bit more uh, of an ex- exotic strategy, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, you do use derivatives and, uh, yep. I suppose, a systematic approach to some types of investing across your portfolio. Can you explain yep. how you use derivatives and yeah, sure. Yeah, whether they're used for risk or...
1: Yeah, sure. So conceptually, uh, I say conceptually, because we're still sort of in the process of implementing um, our derivative strategy. Mm -hmm. But essentially, we are systematic in the sense that we're trying to obtain yield um, from the strategy, but not be subject to the long tail risk, essentially. So we sort of combine short volatility positions and long volatility positions, but we're always net long. Yep. So if another GFC uh, event <laughs> occurs, then those positions will
0: provide sort of the asymmetric outcomes. Mm, that, yeah, yeah it's some somewhat downside protection there. Yeah. Um, okay, that, that's great. Uh, and you and I got talking over Twitter, um, mm-hmm. and we've had since had some really good conversations on there, albeit with limited characters. Yeah. Another point of differentiation is I suppose you're uh, you're weighting into equity positions, so share positions on the ASX. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you explain to listeners and to myself what you're looking for when you're making these investments? We look for a lot of things, to be honest. Um, We have
1: various uh, buckets that we, I guess, silos that you could, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: could,
1: there's probably a better description Mm -hmm. that we particularly interest us. I I guess guess. you could
0: use an example. Yeah. Yeah and describe what you like about the position or?
1: Sure, sure. Say for example, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear to um, people that follow us that we really uh, like Afterpay Mm -hmm. uh, as an opportunity. Um, We feel that for a lot of reasons, Um, you know, we feel that the growth path ahead is uh, immense, you know, the opportunity at hand. Mm -hmm. And um, we think it ticks all the boxes, you know, from the management team, to um, the structure of the markets themselves, to the technology—it's all, yeah—it's all there for us. Basically, mm-hmm. we feel that perhaps uh, the local market isn't valuing the opportunity the same way it might be valued in the U.S.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, one thing that we found that was very interesting was the entrance of Berkshire Hathaway, that that's run by Warren mm-hmm. Buffett, who is the yep, epitome of, of course, yep. a value investor and uh, their investment into uh an indian payments platform that they valued at a, i think they purchased the equity for about a 10 billion dollar valuation overall well but saying that you know um that's you know the clarity around the company financials isn't that clear because it's uh, a private company so i felt that uh that was almost a paradigm shift in in terms of um you know for for a prominent value investor mm to um, invest in these payment platform companies. I felt that, you know, Afterpay itself is a very uh, strong and it's a viral platform, Mm -hmm. payment platform. Um, So that sort of um, has really added conviction to um, our sentiment Mm -hmm.
0: around the company. Afterpay seems like quite a convincing case. Um, Mm -hmm. It it tends to polarise people, but... I'm interested to know how big the 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 size of the investment is, I suppose, in percentage terms or just broad terms. And why you have such a conviction and, and and why you concentrate the portfolio the way you do.
1: So after pay, uh, just off the top of my head, would probably comprise about twenty five percent of our portfolio. The, of value. the entire portfolio? Uh yes. Okay. Um, but that's grown from a cost base of about fifteen percent, so mm if we look at it in terms of cost base it's about 15 Mm percent but by value or market value it's 25 uh you know we think or we believe that good opportunities are rare uh, and you know they really should be you know compelling opportunities should be weighted appropriately Mm -hmm. i mean it makes no sense to us at least uh you know why you would I guess, for example, hold um, a very diverse portfolio just for the market exposure. Mm. You know, if I wanted to achieve um, market beta, I'd go out and buy an index future
2: because mm. that's
1: the cheapest way to express it. Uh, yeah, and so I think good uh, company opportunities, compelling opportunities, are rare, mm. which is why we uh, you know invest with such conviction and concentration. Yeah.
0: We're, we're taught to. Uh, it seems from a very early age we're taught to buy low and sell high mm-hmm. and almost by definition that means that we sell our winners yeah. uh, whereas some evidence seems to suggest that we should back our winners mm-hmm. those, are the, those are the positions that we should follow so it's, yeah. um, it's great to see you have the conviction
1: yeah and I think it goes back to um, our trade process, you know we prefer to scale into things uh, to mm-hmm. reduce our risk and scale out of things to take money off the table when we think sort of, you know, an appropriate value has been uh, reached.
0: Mm-hmm. So is that, is that, I suppose, that uh, your self-discipline then? Um, mm-hmm. You start to trim positions when they hit your estimate of intrinsic value?
1: Yes, uh, to a degree. Um, uh, I guess the real question is how do you calculate intrinsic value
0: mm-hmm. and
1: what method do you use to calculate it? Or is there such a, you know, could you really say values intrinsic because it would (laughs) obviously vary depending on what methodology you use Mm. so you know we just uh, like to think of things in uh in terms of how the business is actually operating itself Mm -hmm. and we try to sort of isolate risks you know uh really be aware of um, what particular risks the business is exposed to more than anything uh so as long as the business is tracking well um you know and not subject to any sort of externalities as far as we can uh gauge then we're happy to sort of be along with the journey as long as mm-hmm. everything is tracking in the right direction
0: okay so i imagine the holding period on uh some of the positions or at least your investment horizon would be quite lengthy it
1: just really depends on what bucket uh mm. um, or silo uh, the opportunity falls into mm-hmm. uh Uh, the example of a past position I can give you is uh, the reject shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we purchased it. uh, That was, it was during the time of when Amazon Mm -hmm. was entering Australia Mm -hmm. and was going to put all retailers out of business. Mm -hmm. So um, we ended up purchasing the reject shop in the, around the mid $3 range from memory. And uh, that was well under, you know, the NTA on their books, mm-hmm. or they claimed NTA, and um, that was, we treated that more as a mean reversion play, and uh, we ended up getting out of that particular stock, I think, in the mid to high sevens, so we made mm-hmm. very good money on it, um, but it was just a matter of sort of buying it cheaply, holding it for, you know, a certain period when the market started to recognise its value. Mm-hmm. And um, once it started to trade up there, which was sort of a little bit over NTA, we thought, okay, um, the thesis has played out. So it's time for us to get out of it slowly. Yeah.
0: So would, in that case, you're using NTAs, I suppose, a uh, mm-hmm. yardstick. As oh,
1: in, oh, sorry. I should say in that particular instance, it wasn't uh, NTA that we used uh, as a primary measure mm-hmm. of value. It was more uh, the cash flow multiple. Okay. Which were, So from memory, I think it was trading at about a three-time cash multiple mm. at $3.50. And then obviously, um, once it had risen, it was
0: trading at a much higher multiple. Okay. So I suppose a tight in the wall value investor would perhaps run a discounted cash flow analysis and um, maybe provide that reference point with uh, some sort of comparables. Um, so is that, in this instance, it seems more like that was a comparables type of position you looked at relatively what it was worth Uh,
1: well it's more a matter of for example if i was to go out and privatize the reject shop at that valuation which could have been a possibility given you know our AUM Mm -hmm. would it make sense from that sort of perspective as a PE sort of play and Mm -hmm. that's how i really thought about that okay yeah uh and if you've got a you know uh, if you're buying at a cash multiple three times, mm. that's a cash yield of a bit over 30%. Mm. You know, debt is cheap at the moment. Mm. <laughs> How much equity would, would be required to take it over at that valuation? You know, so it was uh, compelling from that opportunity.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Uh, most people probably wouldn't look th- at it through that lens. Yeah. Whereas you have the ability to do so, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that's great. It's great insight into your valuation process. Mm-hmm. So how, how much of the portfolio do you allocate to shares?
1: We use a dynamic approach, so we don't have any uh, constraints whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm talking about in the sense of our, our private portfolio, not the, the fund itself has position limits, mm-hmm. uh, but privately we, we're unconstrained. Mm-hmm. I suppose at the moment um, we'd probably have about maybe 30% uh, equity exposure
2: at mm-hmm.
0: the moment. Okay, and that's all Australian. Listed. Yeah,
1: yep. yeah. So we're purely uh, uh, invested in the local market because uh, we find it a little bit easier to manage FX risk, and mm-hmm. or not have exposure to that net FX risk.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm interested to know is, with your team as it is today, how how do you filter, or how do you get ideas across you know, all assets that you invest in?
1: Sure. So we have relationships with uh, a large number of uh, debt syndicators. So we ha- we get access to a lot of deal flow, basically. Mm-hmm. So in a month, we'd typically see at least four to five opportunities a month, I'd say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that gives us a lot of insight into what's happening in the market. And, you know, we hold um, uh, all that information on a database so we can tell, mm-hmm. you know, virtually within, you know, 15 minutes whether we like the deal (laughs) or whether we don't so and uh we've developed a really um good reputation in the market that we can put up you know significant clips of money in very short notice i think um the quickest we put up money i think is almost same day to be honest for one of our deals wow um same day yeah um you know typically we privately we hold you know decent amount of cash at any one time typically mm. not always but um, yeah so uh, yeah we like to sort of keep that option open if something we really like comes pops up then we're able to participate in it
0: how long what typically how long do you invest in these these positions ah uh, we try and
1: control our duration to sort of mitigate um interest rate risk mm-hmm. Uh, so we tend to like facilities that are under twelve months, uh, okay. so we really control our duration risk. And um,
0: yeah, so. That's when, and when you assessing these opportunities, you obviously there's micro factors that we take into account. Um when mm-hmm. you take into account, such as the project itself, the the terms? Mm. But do you also take into account the macro environment? Um, in Melbourne, uh, and indeed in many capital mm-hmm. cities around Australia, at the moment we're seeing substantial supply of, say, apartment buildings and, mm-hmm. and townhouses and that type of thing. Uh, and there's concerns around. There are concerns around you know, severe price um, depreciation, mm-hmm. um, potential bankruptcies with builders, that type mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, can you explain? how you mitigate those risks and, and, yeah, sure. and the, the terms of the, the deals, I suppose, in any broad sense? Yeah,
1: so we have uh, deep industry links or we maintain deep industry links. so mm-hmm. um, And that runs across, you know, uh, market participants at, at every level in every capacity. Mm-hmm. So we are able to virtually pick up the phone to anyone <laughs> okay. in the industry and find out what's going on if you know, that's sort of part of our due diligence process. Mm-hmm. So I think that is uh, a, a real advantage for us uh, and that's what sort of separates us. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's almost like an edge, being able to call you know a big commercial build and say, okay, do you think this is um, appropriate mm-hmm. uh, for a construction estimate? Do you think the facility will be enough? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with this? So I think that uh, provides us a really good uh, broad advantage and being able to sort of these principles of the firms directly Mm. is a real advantage for us.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I think in a previous conversation you've said to me that, and this will provide context for the listeners, that uh, it's just like a mortgage on a house if you're the first creditor to to take control of the property if things go really badly. Hmm. So is that primarily how you see risk um, that's that I suppose the worst case and um, has that ever happened have, have you ever had to I suppose I don't even know what the term is but uh, yeah. take control of uh, premises. the term is foreclose and mm-hmm. no we haven't
2: okay uh,
1: we tend to be pretty good at picking out uh, the projects that uh, we don't think stack up or mm-hmm. make sense of course having that market Intel um is really beneficial um Mm -hmm. from that side and um there are lots of tools out there that um, are freely available to the public as well you know in terms of you know um whether you know the end product is priced um you know at a realistic figure Mm -hmm. so we look at all those sort of factors as well and um it's all um sort of freely available um to the investing public yeah Mm -hmm. as well and uh, um now that you mentioned. the first mortgage. So you can also invest in, in debt, depending on the facility at different levels, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's we judge that according to first principles, as we mentioned. So mm-hmm. uh, everything, goes back there down mm-hmm. to that. You know, for first, if we're getting say ten percent on a first mortgage, then the second mortgage should be a lot higher, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you work off that.
0: In a recent letter, uh, you talked about funding in the marketplace. Uh, the big banks particularly before the GFC I believe the number you had was around about 60% mm-hmm. they were you know, throughout the, the the commercial real estate debt markets and then we saw that spike a few years ago but mm-hmm. now we've seen that come off and you expect that to continue yeah. why do you think that why are they pulling out and I suppose well, does that create an opportunity for you
1: yes well it's a simple supply and demand equation I think um, mm-hmm. I think you're making reference I think Pre-GFC, banks were funding, I think, about 60% Mm -hmm. of the uh, commercial development space, Mm -hmm. and that had risen as high as 85% or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's down, I think, it's sitting at about 75% at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I think that will continue tapering down because uh, of the entrance of new players in the market. For example, the commercial development space in the US is significantly lower Okay. I think that, you know, just off the top of my head, is sits at about 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that it will become like mm-hmm. that in Australia, but, you know, um, it's a very uh, broad market. And, um, yeah, so if the banks drop 5%, that's still a huge opportunity mm-hmm. for private investors out there.
0: When I read that um, in the letter... I thought that that was potentially a concerning sign, mm-hmm. but if that creates opportunities for other lenders mm-hmm. to come into the market, then I suppose these pro- these developments are still going to go ahead, and mm-hmm. and um, builders are going to are going to be able to source capital. Mm-hmm. Investing in shares, uh, Australian and international, is probably enough for me in terms of my intellectual capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested to know um, where do you feel you fundamentally you add value to the to the investment process? Mm-hmm.
1: I think across the whole board. Okay. Um, you know, I think being a generalist with strong technical skills mm-hmm. has its advantages and being able to compare opportunities across different asset classes um, is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if you know someone who only invested in equities is only com- able to compare equities against equities, but not uh, compare returns at the equity level against you know higher up in the capital structure. Mm. I think that really affects um, the ability to analyze um, those equity opportunities accurately. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, I, I guess, where a lot of our value lies and being able to accurately assess uh, the risk return characteristics of our investments.
0: Mm. Well, it's very difficult <coughs> for people to for retail investors, anyhow, mm. to to move uh, further up that uh, capital structure, or to mm. you know, to, to be in a position to invest in, in bond markets or debt uh, mm. at, at, at any small scale.
1: But, um, saying that, it can be done at the retail level uh, via um, listed bonds mm-hmm. or hybrids. Okay. Uh, An r- example I can give you is, uh, I think uh, at the start of two thousand and sixteen, mm-hmm. we had uh, quite a significant investment in uh, seven-group hybrids, the Tele's 4 mm-hmm. instrument, and uh, the face value on those hybrids is $100, and we picked them up sort of at an average price of about $65. Mm. At that price, it was year, you had a running yield of about 12%, mm. or a little bit over 12% fully franked um, distributions. Oh, wow. And so that was quite a good opportunity because you had, um, uh, you know, capital upside, but you had a very strong running yield as well. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, recently we sold out of those in sort of the mid $90 range um, mm. with the with latest uh, conversion proposal that's been put forth. So mm-hmm. we've achieved, you know, a very strong return over our whole period of two or three years.
0: And uh, yeah, but. So there's definitely a market, you would say. Mm. For retail investors, if they're willing,
1: yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, it's just about, I guess, broadening. Um, you know, they hunt beyond equities. There's there's plenty of listed stuff available mm-hmm. okay. um, in in the fixed in income space. That's
0: great. Yeah. I'd like to just discuss the, the managed fund. Mm-hmm. It's currently it's not open to retail investors. It's it's a whole just a wholesale fund at the mm-hmm. moment.
1: Yeah, and a big part of that comes down to liquidity. Mm-hmm. Um, from my understanding, with retail funds, uh, liquidity requirements are significantly higher. You have to be able to um, offer daily liquidity, I think, in mm-hmm. most cases. and um, But part of our investment strategy is to be paid for taking upon uh, the risks of investing in illiquid assets. Mm. And so it doesn't lend itself to... I don't think it lends itself easily. It probably could be done, um, but it's not our focus at the moment, moment,
0: yeah. Mm. I suppose that's just another headache, isn't it? Um, For those who don't know what we mean by liquidity, being able to, to, as a retail investor, get your money in and out as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, But if you're investing in illiquid assets, that's obviously another thing that you have to deal with, the flows. Mm. Um, Okay. There's just one, I suppose, final point here that I think would be of real interest to uh, our listeners is your efforts, uh, your philanthropic uh, endeavours and I suppose that giving back. Can you explain what um, what your family is, is trying to achieve here?
1: I, I suppose it all stems uh, primarily from my mother, who, uh, as I've um, mm. articulated, is quite a selfless sort of person and being active in helping the community and sort of giving privately um, donations to various charitable causes. Mm-hmm. The opportunity to set up the foundation was really a way to structure that. And, and um, you know, foundation uh, donations are made just to um, Australian charities and mm-hmm. Is there charitable particular focus? causes. Uh, yeah, so typically on alleviating uh, homelessness and, you know, child poverty, mm-hmm. we do... We, we give to sort of medical research as well. Mm-hmm. That's in addition to her, um, you know, private donations. No, I uh, think that's wonderful. Overseas. So, yeah, it's been um, it's been a good experience for us uh, in the sense of really thinking about, you know, how the funds will be or the donations will be used most efficiently mm-hmm. and how we'll get to those in need now, you know, rather than mm-hmm. a year or two down the track. I think, um, you know, there's a real need for, um, you know, Charity in society, and mm. we focus on helping people immediately rather than
0: mm, because um, there's obviously I suppose one argument is that can be made is if you have the ability to invest money and compound that um, relatively well mm-hmm. that the money is perhaps better off in your hands for a, a substantial period of time um, mm-hmm. rather than delivering those 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 funds now mm-hmm. uh, so. Just to confirm, does a portion of the, the profit from the the match fund go to the charitable trust that you've set up?
1: Yes, so we will be donating a portion of profits mm-hmm. um, to the charitable fund. Um, we haven't, you know, determined whether it's going to be a fixed amount, but we would probably uh, say that it would be a low double digit. Bigger at this point
0: yeah great I mean over the, time the, yeah the, the funds are relatively new but yeah exactly <laughs> it, it be great to see that play out over time yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so I think that is um, you know we consider that just doing our bit mm-hmm. and uh, we feel that it'll be used
0: beneficially and mm-hmm. it'll be good yeah great um, okay so if people want to learn more about you and about that family office and that capital group where can they go uh, the best place to go would be our website. Is dat d a
1: double t dot com dot au, mm-hmm. and that provides sort of a broad overview of um,
0: what we do. You can
1: request for more details through that.
0: Great, great. And my favourite and final question is: if you could go back in time and tell a younger you something about finance, money, or investing, what would it be?
1: Uh, I don't think I'd change anything on because, as I said before, you know, we're you know the person we are today is. Um, yeah, we are some of all our experiences and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I've got a very happy, satisfying life at the moment and I wouldn't change that for anything.
0: Well, that's great to know. Yeah. And uh, Manuel, thank you for your time today yeah. and uh, I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Owen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owenrask. Cheers to our financial futures.